You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. Just all right? Little Whoa, whoa, hold on now. I, I can sense a little depression coming off that side of the table, and I bet I know the answer why. I bet I have a... Go ahead. I have an idea. Take a guess. Well, when I was at your daughter's birthday party, uh huh. When was that? Saturday. Saturday. Saturday afternoon. Out of afternoon, you were telling me that you personally had to rearrange the MMA junkie uh, after the event schedule. That's true. Following Fight Night One Hundred Three, One Hundred Four, whatever it was. One Hundred Three. Hashtag UFC Phoenix. Talking uh, Stick Arena. Granddaddy of them all. Because you said you had a, an eleven o'clock puck drop for your hockey team we had a late game last night and i can tell you know i'm just gonna divine from your demeanor here that you did not win you know we we're really close this was a winnable game for us chad it was a winnable game and uh you know sometimes the the puck just doesn't drop your way is that a hockey phrase it could be doesn't, yeah. doesn't roll your way sure doesn't slide you can't put the biscuit in the I don't know. If you said it with more authority, maybe Ed. you were you had me at biscuit. Well, so far, no like one's something. saying anything with any kind of authority on this week's show. You're no. moping around over there. It was a tough one. I'm not going to lie to you. I finally feel like I've gotten just barely good enough at this hockey thing to get pissed off when we lose, which good. is most of the time. I'm glad that you've entered that stage yeah. of your career. I expect that will last the duration. See, I was going to ask you how this Sunday night UFC works for schedule-wise for you, if you like it as compared to Saturday night or Friday night, any of the other weird nights that they do. Because uh, for me, I found I was able to you know, get up on Monday and roll straight into the week. Everything's still fresh in my mind. Well, I saw you were very enthusiastic when you figured out that this was only a four-fight main card. Absolutely. <laughs> That's as, the best as, news you could possibly get. As is part of my job, right, to critique the, the flow of the production. They've been torturing us with these six-fight main cards for too long, Ben. A four-fight main card, and still the main event does not start until after the broadcast is supposed to be over. After I posted that, most of the people who responded were like, dude, you know it's on FS1, right? They're just going to stretch this out. Well, and but this time it actually worked in my favor because I had the DVR the last two fights while I went to go play in my hockey game, in which we were very nearly successful. And then I came back and was watching the tail end of the, the broadcast. And you know, when you DVR something, at least when you got the satellite dish and there's inclement weather sometimes and it's all choppy. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Like this whole, I recorded basically just a choppy broadcast and I can't tell what the hell it is. But then lo and behold, that ends and I get to just go to the post fight show, which I recorded, of course, because I know what's up. And then the recording is nice and smooth. So this time, the UFC's complete inability to follow a schedule that they themselves set out worked in my favor. I bet that the other people at MMA Junkie just love it that you're out here rearranging the schedule to meet your, your hockey needs. You know, I they're they're good coworkers. I I came to them with this proposal. They they made it happen for me. The entire Cold Avenger team in the Glacier Hockey League appreciates what they're doing i would love to see the email chains that you are not cc'd on <laughs> we've got music again this week from friend of the podcast the fifth element a music producer from fort worth texas thanks to him from for that if you like what you hear you can check him out at facebook.com slash the fifth element twitter at the fifth element and soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official and as you probably know by now that's the word the with an a and the number five in fifth element three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one maybe yair rodriguez is the spinny kicky flippy superstar the world needs right now and in round number two but wait though did the ufc use the legend of bj penn to put rodriguez over on sunday night because that shit was unseemly and in round number three, we know you've been waiting for a full round of analysis on tito ortiz crushing that juice box 
Your time is now. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this, this week comes to us from Aaron in Westchester, New York. He writes, lads. Friday on... Wait a minute. That's, yeah. that's from Westchester, New York? That's what he wrote. Is he a transplant? Maybe he's from old Westchester. Oh, okay. The old country? Yeah. Lads, Friday on FS1's The Herd. It's actually Fox Sports Radio's The Herd, but I do believe they do a simulcast over on the television. I'll trust you for the Fox Sports Broadcasting uh, schedule Interim news. UFC President Dana White told host Colin Coward that if the UFC were to find a way to put together Mayweather-McGregor... It would be, it wouldn't just be a one fight card like the boxing world is known to do, but instead one, and I quote, similar to the stacked card we did in New York with, quote, a championship fight as the co-main event. Uh, putting our let's play pretend shoes on for a moment, logistically, how do you see this one playing out? Would Floyd and the Irishman compete in the octagon with boxing gloves? Would they mimic Bellator's dynamite model with a cage and ring side by side? Or perhaps uh, back in WrestleMania 2's multi-venue pay-per-view with one arena hosting the boxing fights and the other the MMA fights? I know we're talking hypothetically and in pure fantasy here, but I'm having a tough time visualizing how this event would look. Yeah, you please, know why you're having please a... Please speculate. You know why you're having a tough time visualizing how it would look? Because no one has put any thought into how it would look because it is some straight bullshit. They're That's just right. chatting breeze out there, my man. <laughs> Indeed, just chatting breeze. In fact, when I saw the video of Dana White on The Herd with Colin Cowherd, I tweeted out the link to the video and said, if you ever, if you need to know what Just Saying Stuff looks like, if you look up Just Saying Stuff in the CME Encyclopedia, this fucking video is right there. Because this is Dana White hashtag just saying stuff yep whatever comes into his mind which ben as i said to you while we were hiding in the kitchen drinking beers and talking at your daughter's fourth birthday party it really reinforces the idea that dana white is a puzzle for those of us who work in the mma media because he's the ufc president so when he says something you assume that it's newsworthy people go out and cover it right. yet at the same time more often than not, especially now, it seems like as compared to earlier in his career, uh, the things that he says are just completely without substance. And most particularly the things, the quote unquote real offer that he made to Floyd Mayweather via a radio show uh, simulcast on television, uh, completely without substance. Right. And especially him phrasing it that way as here's a real offer uh, and the $25 million payout for Floyd Mayweather, basically a pay cut. And part of that real, I mean, I could make a, I could say real offer too. How about this? I'll go 30 million. How about, the, there's a real offer for well, you. If you're gonna I'm going to one up. If you're going to do 30, I'm going to do 32.5. Okay. Okay. I see what you do there. I'm going to do 32.5 and a penny. Okay. Well, now we're on some prices rice shit <laughs> That's over right. here. There's a real offer for you. See, I just said it. So therefore it must be legit, right? Well, each of these offers carrying, I would wager, exactly as much weight and exactly as much forethought as Dana White offering Floyd Mayweather $25 million, uh to fight Conor McGregor, uh, which is essentially a no, right? Like you offer 20, uh, if you, you offer Floyd Mayweather $25 million to get out of bed in the morning, you're basically slapping him in the face, right? <laughs> right. Like that offer is basically a go fuck yourself. Well, and I think that at this point, everybody has figured out, you know what you can do to just get a quick little news cycle out of some, some stuff in this conversation is just throw out anything vaguely new about McGregor Mayweather. And you'll get yourself a couple days of free press out of it. McGregor learned that. McGregor was using that very successfully when he needed to find a way to get himself in the news when there wasn't really, you know, hashtag ain't shit going on for him. And he did it really successfully. Now Dana White, taking a page out of that same book, says, all right, let me go out here with this real offer. We'll get a few headlines out of it. Uh, and then everybody will go, snap back to reality and realize there is no way we have any intention of making this happen. Yeah, and I feel like... uh Aaron from Old Westchester's email here. I I don't I'm not sure that he meant to go this way with it, but like the questions that he brings up about logistically how this shit would even work, I think sort of uh reinforces that idea. It wouldn't work. And one of the reasons why we know it wouldn't work is that no one's going to do it. It's not going to happen. What if you did it like that uh 
was it a WCW event where they had the monster truck where the uh, the Big Show and Hulk Hogan? I mean, the way you're describing it, it must be a WCW event, right? <laughs> they had the. As soon as you say they had that monster truck, I'm thinking WCW. This, this I, I seem to recall Brent Brookhouse, the the departed Brent Brookhouse now who left MMA Junkie to to cover pro wrestling for uh, one of the flow wrestling things. And he sent us this video of this monster truck thing. And it was like they did it on top of Joe Louis Arena, I believe it was. Like wherever that like big pay-per-view was taking place, they did it on the roof of the arena. Naturally, somebody, and I won't spoil it for you, goes over the side of the roof uh, at some point. But maybe you do that. Maybe you put a boxing ring on the top of T-Mobile Arena. Then, you know, we have our MMA business on the inside. And then we cut upstairs. All the way up to the top, overlooking Sin City, there in a boxing, a solitary boxing ring with just Conor McGregor on one side, Floyd Mayweather on the other side, and it all happens in a land of pure fantasy. Lit by the spotlights at the top of the Luxor. There you go. Right with those bats swarming around. Now we're in business. Okay. What's our cut of the $25 million for coming up with (laughs) this idea? We get a substantial cut just for creative. Uh... If you're WMEIMG and you have to make all this money, or if you're Dana White and you have to make all this money to have the sale of the UFC to WMEIMG pay out to the full extent that it was supposed to, uh, how desperate do you have to get during 2017 when Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, John Jones, Brock Lesnar, Nick Diaz, George St. Pierre, Nate Diaz are all, at, the, at least at the moment, indisposed, and it looks like you might have at least to begin the year, kind of a financial slump on your hands. How day, how how desperate do you have to get before you start making serious overtures about this fight? Does that ever happen? Man, because you won't be even if you start making the serious overtures now, you won't be able to put it together in time to capitalize on it when you need to. That's probably true. That's probably true. Uh, it doesn't I, help to make unserious overtures to start. I would. They're real offers, Ben. Okay, sorry. Quote unquote real offers. I would think the biggest impediment to actually making this thing happen would be the UFC, right? And we still don't know if Conor McGregor is is trying to do an end around to get out of his UFC contract with this whole applying for a boxing license in California thing. To me, if if Mayweather and McGregor would ever fight for real, I think you'd have a better chance of seeing them handle that on their own than actually doing it like under the guise of the UFC, especially since Floyd Mayweather is essentially his own promoter and has been for like a decade. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I guess I would say as kind of a devil's advocate to that, if there was ever a chance for him to work with the UFC, probably a better chance now that he could just work directly with the WME IMG people rather than having to deal with Dana White and the Fertitas about it. Like, N- Go ahead. Next question this week comes to us from Dan Dawkins. He writes, Hey guys, I hope I'm not alone in thinking Anderson Silva versus Derek Brunson is just a very weird piece of matchmaking. What's really going on? Uh, you are not alone, Dan. And Ben, this is one that I did not see coming. No, I don't think anybody did. Announced kind of out of the blue this last week, a middleweight contest between the greatest of all time, Anderson Silva and uh, Derek Brunson in, uh, well, what I guess is probably going to end up being the co-main event of UFC 208 on February 11th, which of course is the event that is uh, currently main evented by the women's, the first ever, the inaugural women's featherweight championship between Holly Holm and Jermaine Durandamy. Uh, so yeah, this is a weird one. Although when the last time we were talking about what happens next for Derek Brunson, I think just eyeballing the UFC official rankings, we were like, well, what are they going to have him do? Fight Anderson Silva next? Because they're kind of like, or at least were at the time right next to each other. So just speaking in terms of like where everybody is ranked, this is not that big of a, a leap, I don't think, for either guy. But just in terms of stature in the sport, this is a big a big opportunity for Derek Brunson and kind of a uh, WTF-style opportunity for Anderson Silva. Is this is this the UFC telling Anderson Silva to go home? Is that what this is? Now, see, that you floated that opinion to me earlier. Uh, I You know... I'm open to you listen to you making an argument, but I guess my opening question would be, why would the UFC want Anderson Silva? Why would they want to send a get lost message to Anderson Silva? Perhaps because maybe he was not amenable to other offers that they thought were more in line with what a guy of Anderson Silva's stature should be doing right about now. Because if you ask me, what should you do with Anderson Silva right now if he is going to insist on fighting on and you know you want his name to add a little something to UFC 208, I can see that. 
I can understand where you're coming from, but you don't you don't have him fight somebody who's seriously trying to climb up the ranks and really make a go of it in the middleweight division. You have him fight somebody fun, something weird. Yes. Like a Nick Diaz. Like, that's exactly the kind of fight, if you hadn't done somebody it already Somebody who's going to lie down in the middle of the cage, prop himself up on one elbow, elbow and... See? You know what I'm talking taking about. Taking it all in. Exactly. That's what you... That's what it seems like would be the logical choice to have him do here, unless he is absolutely insisting on being a serious part of the middleweight division or is not up for other fun ideas you think you have for him. And so you tell him, all right, all right, Anderson. That's how you want to play it? Fine. You and Derek Brunson, buddy. Look at the rankings. It makes perfect sense. Go out there and fight Derek Brunson. See how you like that. See, I feel like from a you and me standpoint, this is a fun fight, though. Like, if you are a hardcore mixed martial arts fan, especially since on this show, we spent such a long time talking up Derek Brunson before he went out uh, and sprinted right into the teeth of the offense of Bobby Knuckles at uh, their fight night event from Melbourne, Australia, last or in November, I guess, end of November. Uh, I, I kind of thought Derek Brunson might have had a kind of a bright future in this division. He's in, clearly, as we learned against Robert Whitaker, an offensive-minded kind of guy. And so to have that guy come out and fight Anderson Silva, at least in terms of like a matchup of style, seems to me pretty fun. It's just not going to do you jack crap at the box office, most likely. Well, no, I mean, I think it can be an interesting fight, but it also feels a little bit Yair Rodriguez, BJ Pennish to me. Okay, well, now we're jumping ahead. We are fast forwarding <laughs> here. No, I mean, Anderson Silva still has, you know, he can be dangerous in those spots. We saw that even in that fight against Daniel Cormier, where he can still land like one kick that gets you thinking, oh, hey, wait a minute, maybe. Maybe. Uh, and that seems like what he'll probably have to bring to the table against a guy like Derek Brunson. Uh, but it also does feel like, all right, we've decided to, we're in firmly building the next generation phase, and we're going to do that on the scarred old bones of the former generation. Are you trying to say that Anderson Silva ain't as good as he once was, but he's as good once as he ever was? Perhaps. Perhaps. Next question this week comes to us from Vern Russell. Uh, frequent listener and purveyor of wonderful hot sauces. He writes, God damn it, you guys. It appears the UFC isn't giving up on tough just yet. I guess the silver lining is that Cody Garbrandt and Tilly Dills are going to do the damn thing. If there is anything else worth a shit to discourse about this season, please surprise us with it. Then this Tilly Dills thing is taken off. Yeah. It's starting to catch on. Life of its own. I like it. So with some breaking news, though, right before we, we came on to record this episode, Cody Garbrandt was out there jumping on social media uh, saying that he wants, quote unquote, advanced drug testing for uh, this fight with Tilly Dills, uh, which as a couple of guys who used to be teammates, seems like a uh, not so chill thing to, to request. You're saying maybe he saw something in the locker room over at Team Alpha Male and it wasn't just somebody uh, walking into the, the bathroom barefoot and then getting on the mats. It was something even grosser than that. I'm just saying, when your former teammate makes a point to come out and uh, request advanced drug testing, at least you are... I mean, either he's just playing some mind games here or uh, someone needs to tell him to stop snitching, I guess. I don't, I'm or not sure. Or someone needs to tell him you guys are already enrolled in the USADA program <laughs> <laughs> by virtue of being under contract to the UFC. So I, what did you think you were doing already? Okay, here's... As Vern Russell mentions in his question, like... That potentially there is a silver lining here about the coaches on season 25 of The Ultimate Fighter. And that is both that we expect they will fight for the men's bantamweight championship at the end of this season. And also, if you were looking for a season that is probably just going to be tense with uh, bad feelings and we used to be brothers, but now we hate each other's kind of uh, vibe, this is this is your jam right here. Yeah. Season 25 of The Ultimate Fighter where former... Team Alpha Male members TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt have to spend long periods of time together in the gym. Yeah, it does feel like we're going for the drama-filled reality TV formula here. I also, though, I feel like I've been hurt enough times by the coaches not really making it to the fight at the end uh, that I almost feel a little bit gun-shy on this one just because I feel like, man, making those two guys the coaches is almost a great way to make sure they don't fight. At the end. Yeah, but fair enough. Have you seen the, I don't know if this is official or anything, but the rumors about the cast for this season? No, uh-uh. 
Might have been in that email that they sent me, but I didn't make it past the headline. It was not in the email, at least not in the email that I saw, but I saw floating around the internet basically a bunch of old Ultimate Fighter guys coming back, and not necessarily the ones who are notable for being really good. So this could be like a screw-ups episode or a season of the Ultimate Fighter? Again, I don't know. This seemed unofficial when I saw it, but the name Junie Browning was included on hold, that list. Hold the phone now. That's right. Now, see, now you're talking about going full drama. Yes. This, like this, now you're not even getting somebody ready for a future career in the UFC. You're just going for a circus season. Yeah. Well, and it was a bunch of stuff. Like, I mean, for one thing, I saw... Uh, Joe Stevenson's name floated as a part of this. Jamie so Yeager, uh, Gerald Harris. You would have, you would have screw ups, and then you would also have complete murderers. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, again, this I could not tell. You, you're just saying stuff right now. I, I think we I, should put out a just saying stuff disclaimer. I saw it on the internet. That's the best I can do for you there. Uh, but if that in, if that ends up being the direction that they go with the cast for this. That would start to sound like maybe we're seeing the WME IMG influence that they said, wait a minute, you guys have a reality show and it's not basically The Bachelor with fighting? How have you fucked this up? How, what's wrong with you? Why haven't you, you know, used the formula that everybody else has figured out about reality TV? Who are your biggest screw-ups? Bring us your screw-ups. We would like to put them in a house together. Then, I, I don't know. I, I could see that in somebody's mind making for great reality TV and I could see it possibly being terrible for the sport of mixed martial arts. Well, yeah, no, well now I'm excited. Now I can't wait to, to find oh, out God if that damn it. turns I I out it's told true this. or not. Everybody gets killed by Joe Stevenson. That's, that's my vision for this. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Blake Allen. He writes, there's a pretty convincing argument that uncle Dana colluded with Brock Lesnar to let a doped up fighter compete. Uh, even the Daily Beast is talking about it. And then he includes a link uh, from the Daily Beast, which I now know still exists. How about that? Because of this link. Uh, if the UFC settles, they set a bad precedent. If they don't, it lengthens their bad press. Is the UFC's growth into the mainstream finally going to shed some light on their more sketchy behavior? What are the implications here? Confer on that shit! Exclamation point. Uh, this is obviously a reference to Mark Hunt having uh, obtained a lawyer, and uh, do we know, has he filed this lawsuit yet? Or yes, we yeah. The lawsuit is filed. Uh, so he is suing the UFC on a number of different grounds, making a number of different claims, uh, the most eye-catching of which, at least vocabulary-wise, obviously is racketeering, uh, stemming from his UFC 200 bout with Brock Lesnar, which he originally lost and later got turned into a no contest after Brock Lesnar uh, failed a... a Two drug tests for a couple of different PEDs, which his camp says may have resulted because of his use of a strange foot cream. Yeah, I think they uh, dropped that eventually, right? When We're the, not still going with the foot cream When defense? the foot cream stuff, when they couldn't pin down whatever it must have been in this crazy foot cream, they, that, they, that's when they accepted the settlement with the NSAC. That's too bad, because I was looking forward to turning on court TV and watching like 45 minutes of heated cross-examination with Brock Lesnar on the stand about his foot creams. I was just looking forward to finding out what foot cream it is, because I could stand some of that. Now, for Mark Hunt, uh, maybe this is kind of an unexpected move for for a guy who is always, like, up until this this Lesnar thing happened, kind of seemed like a, both a company man uh, and kind of like a let-your-fists-do-the-talking sort of guy. I'm not sure that we expected Mark Hunt to turn around and actually file a lawsuit on this. Maybe the UFC did not either. Uh, but here we are nonetheless. Ben, what what are the odds that you see the, anything uh, substantive coming from this from this lawsuit? Well, you know, I don't, I've read some of the legal analysis by the people who actually know what the hell they're talking about. It sounds like a lot is going to depend on if the UFC can get this dismissed early on. Because obviously that's going to be the goal. And with some of the really ambitious claims that Mark Hunt's people are making here... You can see that maybe you might have overreached in a couple areas, but if they, if you get past that phase, if you get to where the UFC tries to get it dismissed and they can't, then I think that there would have to be a lot of motivation on the UFC's part to settle this, if That's at all possible. Think. Because you do not want to get out there and have Mark Hunt and his lawyers dragging out the deadspin report that Josh Gross wrote about uh, what happened at what was it UFC 152 with Vitor Belfort and John Jones in Toronto? Where you know if you're alleging that this is a pattern of behavior on the UFC's part, where they know that people may and in fact some in some cases 
know that they are abusing performance-enhancing drugs and they're still letting them fight, it's going to look bad for you. Even if you ultimately end up winning that lawsuit, you just don't want this stuff all drug out there, especially if you're the new owners and you're trying to put a new face on this thing. No, I think you're right. As soon as I see – basically, as soon as I see any fighter lodge a lawsuit against the UFC, I expect – it will end in in some kind of settlement. That is, if it doesn't get thrown out the way that the way that you said. I don't know if it will get thrown out because it seems like Mark Hunt kind of has a case here. Uh, I'm not a legal expert. That's my wife. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like you know, just reading the Daily Beast article, you uh, you come to see that it could be that that Mark Hunt has has something to say on this topic, which I think those of us inside the bubble knew all along. But it will be interesting to see what happens with it. In the same way you just talked me into kind of wanting to see what happens on Tough 25, now that you have also mentioned, perhaps just in my mind, the specter of a Josh Gross cross-examination appearance on the stand, I'm I'm all in for this thing now. I would like to watch this transpire. I want to see testimonies, depositions from Brock Lesnar, Mark Hunt. Josh Gross, Not Dana White. Mention, Let's just do it. Let's just go. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things that could happen here is if you have to have a lot of depositions of like UFC executives who are around at the time who are not around anymore. I mean, we that was a while ago anyway, and plus the UFC just shed a bunch of executives after uh, the WMEIMG sale. You have a lot of people out there who probably know where some bodies are buried, yep. so to speak, and do not work for the UFC anymore. And so I think some of those depositions could get interesting. What a delicious irony it would be if the old OG of MMA writing, currently banned by the UFC from attending events, covering them as a credentialed journalist, ended up costing them a boatload of money. I love it. And what what another sense of irony is that Mark Hunt, remember, was supposed to be the guy that Dana White tried to pay just to not fight. And then Mark Hunt said, no, 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 please, after they bought the, after they bought Pride and all their contracts, Mark Hunt wanted to fight. You get him in there, he turns out to be something of a pleasant surprise, and then the next thing you know, he's dragging you into court. Boy, I bet if we were still getting regular Dana White scrums, we already would have heard a very one-sided, uh, retelling of how it, how Mark Hunt came to even be in the UFC. That's right. You, you helped this guy out. This give him a helping hand. You for fights. That's right. No one else would even spit on the guy with his record at the time. You lifted him up out of nothing, and now look. Now he's going to sue you. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there... You can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that you miss when we're not recording the podcast. News always breaks. Stuff always happens. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, among the many remarkable things about Yair Razael Rodriguez Portillo, I'm going to come out and say my favorite is that he would he would rather kick you in your face. As like, opposed to what? Shake your hand. Okay. Tie his shoe. I don't know. Anything. One of the things that I find kind of terrifying about Ye- Yair Rodriguez is that a lot of people can kick you in the face, right? If you're an MMA fighter, kind of standard tool of the game at this point. High kick, kick somebody in the face. For Yair Rodriguez, that's day one stuff. Like, that's how he opens the conversation, is by kicking you right in your face. He would rather kick you in the face than do almost anything else. True. And when he is kicking you about the face, the body, and the legs, he does so with a a physical posture that suggests, I could do this all night. Right. Can you? That's what I'm saying. It seems so easy for him. It's like... No wind-up, no warning, just, hey, man, how you doing? Whack! Right in the face. (laughs) Well, and 
go ahead and block it if you think that will save you. Go ahead and put your little your measly little hand up there. Try to protect your your pretty pretty precious face. See how that goes for you. He don't care. He just kicked right through that thing. In retrospect, even though the odds were lopsided, even though we talked at length last week about how we thought Yair Rodriguez was kind of a shoe in here to beat BJ Penn, now that we've actually seen it uh, end via TKO during the longest 24 seconds of anyone's lives into the second round of this fight, uh, it seems pretty obvious that what you had here was a showcase fight for a young, up-and-coming, potential future star in the UFC uh, matched against a foil uh, who essentially is is a longtime legend, seasoned veteran of the sport, uh, but you got to believe was just there to kind of like make Yair Rodriguez look good uh, in terms of like the matchmaking philosophy here. BJ, this obviously, this fight obviously is on the level. I'm not kind of trying to, uh, you know, allege anything else. BJ Penn was obviously out there trying to win this thing, but everybody must have known that this this was going to, be how it went down, especially the people who were in charge of putting it together. Uh, and I know we want to talk more about BJ Penn in round number two. Uh, but for Yair Rodriguez to go up there and blow through this guy the way he did, uh, is this the sort of like landmark performance, I guess, that, that it's meant to be for Yair Rodriguez? Or does this say more to you about the decline of BJ Penn than it does maybe about the, the, like the launch of El Pantera? Uh, you know, I kind of hate to choose between those two options. Yeah, I be- suppose it doesn't have to be an either-or. Because I do think that Yair Rodriguez is really good and still getting better. And so it's going to be exciting to see where he can go with this. At the same time, I think back to that fight over the summer against Alex Caceres where he won a split decision. Looked good in that, won the fight. It was an exciting back-and-forth fight. But, you know, it was him against Alex Caceres who is... Also an up-and-comer of the division, but not exactly a dominant force in that division. And it was competitive. It was close. It wasn't like he blew through him or anything. So when he does go out there and completely annihilates BJ Penn, I think that does say a little bit more about where BJ Penn is at. Um, but also that, you know, one of the things I was thinking while watching this fight was a guy like Yair, Yair Rodriguez who has that kind of dynamic stand-up game that he can throw out there just constantly and just keep it on you at, at such a, a pace, such an unrelenting like pressure with that style. And then when BJ Penn does get in close and is clinching him and looking for a takedown, and he's doing everything right there. You know, he, he it's not like he has a glaring weakness for you to expose. And... It's got to be a little bit frustrating for a guy like BJ Penn, who 10 years ago, guys like Yair Rodriguez didn't really exist. It was, if it was somebody was going to be that good at one aspect of the game, they were going to have some glaring holes for you to exploit elsewhere. Yeah. Everybody else, at that point, they were just specialists trying to plug up the other holes in their game. And that was one of the things that was kind of special about BJ Penn, was that he was one of the first dudes who had really good jujitsu and then also kind of turned himself into a pretty good boxer, uh, and could hurt you that way as well. So, to go out there and to encounter a dude in Yair Rodriguez who's like 24 years old and can still do all that stuff, that kind of tells you that the game done changed. And Yair Rodriguez is a good example of where it's going. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's a, a good way to read this fight. As an addendum, I would say Yair Rodriguez is far and away the best fighter that I've ever seen fight to a split decision with Alex Caceres. Uh, and frankly, a, a split decision against Charles Rosa previous to that. So there's some evidence to suggest that while this style is is uh really uh really works if if it if he gets going on it i think we saw in that alex caseras fight if somebody goes out there with the kind of game plan to sort of uh crowd the kicking game and shut that aspect of it down uh at least at that stage as of august of 2016 yaya rodriguez became a little bit more of a mortal fighter uh and that makes me wonder about the guy's future because here he is, as you said, still getting better, 24 years old, uh, Mexican, Mexican fighter could be pretty important to the UFC's continued, uh, push to try to open up that market south of the border, which I think the UFC believes could be very lucrative. And you can make everybody vomit by continuing to hold events in Mexico City. That's, that, that's right. Uh, but it seems like, yeah, Rodriguez is a, uh, uh, an easier fit 
for the role of the guy who's going to be your star down there than, say, Cain Velasquez, who the UFC tried to make a star in Mexico and it kind of blew up in every way it possibly could have. You can't bring C-level Kane to Mexico City. That's, yeah, a fair point. But I wonder about this, about, about Yair Rodriguez's style and whether or not, as he goes through this maturation process in the UFC, like, is this a guy kind of like what the UFC did with Conor McGregor, uh, who's going to need to have his matchups massaged a little bit earlier in the, early in the career, which is, you know, that's different than what the UFC has done historically with guys who seem like they could be young stars. And yet, in once it's in the rearview mirror, this BJ Penn fight kind of looks like a step in that direction. Are let's you just say. saying that BJ Penn was Yair Rodriguez's Dennis Seaver? I hadn't thought of it that exactly that way, but I think it's possible. Because that would be a sad irony since, as you recall, the guy BJ Penn was supposed to get in his comeback fight was going to be Dennis Seaver. Yeah, yeah. And see, a lot of layers here, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and that's a, it's a long journey to go from them telling you, how about Dennis Seaver, who is exactly as old as you are, and as we all know, we keep him around to lose to people who we want to make look good. Right. Uh, to then having to fight a guy like Yair Rodriguez. But I don't know, because if, if that's the case, if he is supposed to be the Dennis Seaver launch pad here for Yair Rodriguez, then I guess the question is, where do you go next? Right. Because if you go right back into just kind of the, the meat of the rankings, kind of somewhere in the middle ground there, then I don't know. That that seems like a little anticlimactic. At the same time, if he's 24 years old and you got a lot of talent in that division anyway, do you really want to rush him? Yeah, like, and I think it'll be kind of a fascinating discussion to continue to have as Yair Rodriguez forges ahead in, in his UFC career. He came into this fight uh, already number 10 on the on the featherweight ranking, so uh, you got a little room there to like have a an evolutionary process as he continues to move up those rankings, but. If he continues to do stuff like what he did to BJ Penn on Sunday night, people are going to want to see him fight top quality fighters, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, you ask who's next. It's interesting to note that you got Dennis Bermudez against Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie coming up here, uh, in just a few weeks as one of the main events of, of, uh, a fight night show during this weird, almost a dead period that we have to begin 2017. We're rolling out Dennis Bermudez versus Chan Sung Jung as a main event fight. Uh, but if, if, if Chan Sung Jung wins that, I mean, that, that's a pretty exciting fight right there with, with Yair Rodriguez. And again, it's probably going to harken back to the direction you want to take with this kid. Like, do you want to build him up slow and steady or do you want to like use him as the cash cow that he might be and throw him out there in, in potentially dangerous, but like, uh, crowd-pleasing main event type fights. Let me just throw something at you here. See how it fits. No, just no pressure. No, I know. I you, think you I know what you're right going to say. Yeah. Do Ho Choi. Okay. Uh, that I would what? take that. I would take that. I thought you were going to play straight into uh, Team Dundas's uh, various peccadillos and give me Brian Ortega. <laughs> okay. T City. No, I wouldn't do that to because you. Because right now, Yair Rodriguez is in a Brian Ortega Duho Choi sandwich in the rankings. That's number uh, nine and number eleven, respectively. So either one of those guys he could end up fighting. And or, frankly, you if you're going to try to build up Yair Rodriguez, uh, Brian Ortega probably on the list. How about this? How about this? Jeremy Stevens. The little heathen? The little heathen. I mean, there you go. Like, uh, I mean, it sounds to me like what we're really saying here is is there are a shitload of awesome matchups in the featherweight division for a guy like Yair Rodriguez. I mean, if I told you, hey, Chad, what are you doing this Saturday night? Because Yair Rodriguez, El Pantera, is going to jump up in the air and kick Jeremy Stevens upside his damn head, you'd be canceling your plans. I'd watch that. Hashtag would watch for sure. I don't. I mean, I guess this is good. It's going to be interesting to see who they choose for him next because it's going to tell us a lot about where the UFC thinks Yair Rodriguez really is and where they want him to go and when. Yeah. All right. Let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, ben, either Mike Goldberg has a twin brother out there who has the exact same taste in shiny, conspicuously branded fashion shirts. Okay, that could happen. Or your boy at MFG16 was in the audience. 
last night at, at Fight Night 103 in Phoenix, to which I say, are you fucking kidding me, obviously? I mean, I guess on one hand, we should have known that a dude as seemingly weird as Mike Goldberg would figure out a way to make his already strange departure from the UFC somehow even stranger. But even by MMA standards, the optics of this thing are fucking weird. <laughs> there were some rumors online that BJ Penn wanted Goldberg to walk him out to the cage, but that the UFC wouldn't allow it. But then by sticking him in the crowd and having him show up unannounced as like a creepy ass grinning hang loose photobomb in the middle of the, the audience is just weird. It made Mike Goldberg look like he either lives in Phoenix or he already had a non-refundable flight and hotel room booked before the UFC fired him, or, and this is my personal favorite, like he's taking the approach that he will show them and he will just keep showing up at every event until they finally take him back. Oh, I like that. I like that theory. Are you fucking kidding me? Too weird, man. Too weird to look up on my TV screen and see Mike Goldberg grinning back at me out of the crowd. That is kind of weird. Uh... You know, Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? I'm I'm sure you did not watch Invicta 21. No. Uh-uh. No. Guilty as charged. But you want to talk about weird? I'll tell you what was weird. Uh, a strawweight fight on that, that card. You have Celine Haga versus uh, Amy Montenegro. First of all, uh, Montenegro gets Celine Haga in an arm bar earlier in the fight, and she taps, but it's... After the bell, at least in the in the eyes of the referee. So she basically has already submitted, but he says, no, 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 didn't count. Fight on. Then at the very end of the fight, the, you know, Celine Haga is working on a choke. Then we hear the final bell. The referee goes to separate them and Montenegro is unconscious. But the referee decides that too is after the bell, okay. even though really right. what he has decided is that he did not realize she was unconscious until after the bell. So then it goes to the scorecards, of course, uh, where Montenegro wins the decision. Okay. Despite ending the fight asleep. Are you fucking kidding me? This fucking kidding me. That's is some real MMA me. shit right here because it's an instance where nobody really seems to know what the rules are and what should happen. And so we just charge blindly forward yep fucking kidding me you fucking kidding me that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two Chad, after that exciting discussion about Yair Rodriguez, a fighter who seems to have nothing but great potential in his future, we now turn our focus to BJ Penn, a fighter who had, let's say, a lot of good stuff in his past. Now, however, BJ Penn, 38 years old, this is at least his second comeback, depending on how you count the other previous departures. He comes back here and just gets absolutely wrecked by Yair Rodriguez. Really no bright spots in this fight for him whatsoever. And as of the time of this recording, we have not heard anything from him about what his plans are going forward. However, before this fight, when we were wondering, what are we doing here with BJ Penn? Why are we coming back now, and what are we hoping to accomplish? He came out in the days before the fight and said he is all in going for the featherweight belt. So does an ass-kicking at the hands of 24-year-old Yair Rodriguez convince him of what everybody else already knew the moment they heard that phrase, which is, that's a terrible idea? Yeah, things are about to get more morose here, aren't they? As compared to that fun-loving round one. It's not going to be a happy round. About El Pantera. Uh, it ought to, right? It ought to convince BJ Penn that perhaps uh, he's not here for the featherweight belt. Uh, because as we just discussed in round number one, Yair Rodriguez is not necessarily a guy who we feel like could jump up there and fight the people right at the top of this division right now as a 24-year-old. And he handled BJ Penn uh, more easily than anyone we've ever seen before. Wore him around like a button. He wore him around like a hat. I would describe perhaps BJ Penn's now four consecutive losses as, uh, you know, 
getting worse. Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns indeed, because he looked pretty terrible uh, in his last fight against Frankie Edgar in, in July of 2014. A very strange performance from BJ Penn. Uh, and in this one, at least I guess you could say BJ Penn looked game. He looked healthy. He looked like he was ready to do the damn thing. He actually looked better than I expected him to look uh, in the first few moments of this fight uh, until he starts getting stumbled by those head kicks that we talked about in round number one. Um, and you know what? For BJ Penn, man, I feel like that's okay. It's okay if this is the end of the road for BJ Penn. This guy uh, is 38 years old. He's been a professional uh, for a long time, since since 2001. As you said, he was one of the first really cross-trained, athletic, modern-style MMA fighters to come down the chute. And, like, if this is the end of the line for him, I feel like, frankly, he's already done enough. Like, I don't think BJ Penn should be out there with anything to prove that he still needs to keep soldiering on in this sport, despite the fact that, as we do for everybody, once their time has come, some people will look back and say he wasn't any good to begin with. Uh, but like BJ Penn's career has been remarkable in a lot of different ways. And so if this is the end of it, if he passes on to the next thing in life, um, I don't feel like that's that sad. I feel like that's exactly right, maybe, for BJ Penn to, to take his leave. Right, but all those things you said could have been true and basically were true, and sh- he should have been able to realize they were true before this fight. Like, he was already at that place where his legacy was secure, he didn't need to do anything else, and still, though, it was obviously very important to him to come back and to do this fight. And when you heard him talking before this fight, I don't know uh, if you saw some of the interviews that he did beforehand, it sounded a lot like BJ Penn had decided he had nothing else left in his life. That it sounded like he was basically saying that he needed this to fill a void in his life. And that's the worrisome thing, I think. It's one thing, like, if, you know, as sad as it is in a different way, like, what if, if a guy comes back and he's just like, hey, I need the money. I need the money, so this is the way I know how to earn money. I'm going to come back in here and I'm going to do this uh, and hope for the best and collect my paycheck and I'm going to go home. You know, that that kind of sucks in a different way, but at least it's a little more realistic. It keeps things in a, a way that we can understand where... Once the money dries up, then he will stop coming around for it and stop taking the beatings. But with BJ Penn talking like this was just something like he basically he did not want to face the next part of his life that did not have fighting in it. He wanted to prolong this part as long as possible. That's where you start to get worried because that doesn't seem like necessarily a man who will be as easily convinced by one bad beatdown that this should be it. Yeah, and strange, I think, for BJ Penn because BJ Penn seems like one of those guys... Uh, who could have a next stage in his life. It seems like he's a guy who could have other irons in the fire if he, uh, you know, decided that's what he wanted to do. He seems like a, you know, well, not the same kind of character in mixed martial arts, but like a Chael Sonnen type individual or Josh Barnett, like somebody that you feel like once their fighting days are done, they could segue into something else that, that could, uh, you know, while probably not providing the same kind of like adrenaline, could make them successful in whatever they wanted to do. So it's strange to hear BJ Penn uh, talk about sort of not being able to let go to this fighting career, although strange only to the extent that every single 38-year-old pro fighter seems to have a really, really hard time walking away from the whole the whole package of it all. So from, you know, it's to be expected in some ways. I just think that BJ Penn has always struck me as a guy uh, who could do other things if he wanted to. So Right, if he wanted to is the hard part because it's easy for us to tell him what he should want. And here's, here's a quote. This is from before the fight. This is from a Fox Sports story. Everybody will always say you've got nothing to prove, and it's true. I do have some accomplishments here and there. I just love the fighting. I see a lot of fighters at 20 or 30, and at 30 they're like, there's more to life than winning a fight. And for me, at 38, that's all there is, winning a fight. Nothing else even matters. I want to tell the kids when they turn 30, I thought the same as you. I thought the same thing you thought. At 38, there's nothing else. That's just what we do. This is our niche. This is us. This is our identity. That's that's a little bleak especially considering what we know now about what happened when he went out there inside the cage. And I want, you know, we talk a lot about like, you know, by we, I mean like media and fans and we talk a lot about legacy saying like, all right, you don't have to do anything else. Will everybody will remember you uh, for what you did. You know, you won titles and UFC titles in two different divisions. You kind of fought all over the map as far as weight classes. 
everybody knows that you know what BJ Penn was and, and what he meant to the sport and how he helped the sport's evolution. You don't have to do anything else. And I guess it's tough to say like what we want him to do with that. Like we say, okay, look, we would like to remember you this way. So go home and stay there so that it will be easier for us to remember you this way. And I don't, it seems like maybe we don't take into account that if he is 38, like basically around the same age that you and I are, that's a lot of life still in front of him that he's got to figure out what to do with. Yeah. It's somewhat selfish of us, right? To try to tell somebody they can't do this anymore, even if we're trying to, uh, prevent the physical damage that happens in this sport and, and seems to stack up on you after you out, outstay your welcome. Uh, but BJ Penn was a dude who like talked about running for office and stuff like that back in the day. He was a guy Did who, he? uh, yeah. And, and I believe his brother, uh, the uh, JD Penn is kind of politically active in Hawaii, or at least was at one time. Uh, and like comes from a well-to-do family, a, a family that's well-respected in, in Hilo, Hawaii. It just seems like, I'm just repeating myself now, but like BJ Penn could do other stuff if he wanted to. Uh, before we wrap up, Ben, how do we, how do you feel about, and maybe, maybe I'm just projecting here, but like the UFC doing BJ Penn this way? Cause in retrospect, doesn't it seem like, as we talked about in the first round, they kind of knew what must have been about to happen here. Well, one thing I would say in the UFC's defense here is that they tried to do them a different way. As we mentioned before, it was, first it was going to be Dennis Seaver. And that felt like the kind of thing where the UFC is saying, all right, we've looked around at the landscape. We know how it goes. Guys like BJ Penn, they can stick around. Guys like Chael Sonnen and Tito Ortiz, they can stick around in this sport too if you get them the right fights. Like if you get them some contemporaries of theirs where you know it seems like we're not just watching a ritual act of cannibalism in the sport. Uh, but then, as we mentioned before, as fights started falling apart for one reason or another, they got progressively tougher and tougher for your boy BJ Penn. It went from Dennis Seaver to Cole Miller to Ricardo Lamas, and then finally ending up at Yair Rodriguez, where it felt like the UFC just kind of ran out of patience with it and was just like, okay, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, and that it is unpleasant to watch, especially if when you know enough about, you know, the kind of the, the arc that the fight game usually takes with these kind of things. It, it, as soon as you were in there, as soon as you sit there and you're watching Yair Rodriguez kick BJ Penn to shreds, you do get kind of just like a sick feeling in your stomach that you're, you're a part of something unpleasant right. by sitting there. Yeah. Um, and I have that feeling as a person who never felt really any emotional attachment to BJ Penn either. Like, uh, I still find it kind of like kind of difficult to watch him be brutalized in his decline. To hear you to read that quote, though, about how this is all he has in his life, and now that we know how the fight turned out, it does make me wonder if at some point BJ Penn's going to be on the phone with Scott Coker pretty soon mm-hmm. here. And that and saying like you you still got those pitbull brothers over there? I just give me one of them. I don't care. Yeah, whichever one you got. Um, that's gonna do it for round number two. Speaking of Bellator, Tito and Chael, we're gonna get started with round number three right now. Ben, dare I say there's some interesting stuff going on in this Tito Ortiz, Chael Sonnen bout scheduled for Bellator 170. What is it, on Saturday night we're doing this thing? That's right. Saturday night, uh, July January 21st, which you, I guess, know if you've heard Chael Sonnen do even one interview for this fight. Day after the inauguration of the, the new president, who both Tito Ortiz and Chael Sonnen supported, I So, believe. like a holiday in their worlds. Yeah. Uh, did you, have you seen the, like, five-minute video trailer that Bellator cut for this thing, where Chael Sonnen's out on the docks in, of, of Westland, Oregon, uh, and then... There's he, no docks in Westland, Oregon? What? There's a river or something. He's down there by the water. I've been to Westland, Oregon. Was there, was there any water? <laughs> I didn't see any water okay, nearby. Well, they, they must have filmed this someplace else then. Uh... He starts talking about how he promised his father on his deathbed back in 2002 that 
Uh, he would beat Tito Ortiz and become the world champion, a story that in mixed martial arts circles we've heard before. Uh, I think Chael first busted it out before he fought Anderson Silva. I think it's in his book, too. Yeah. Uh, back in the day. Uh, but Chael gets pretty emotional while he's talking about it. Kind of like uh, starts tearing up and kind of has to take a moment in the interview to collect himself. And as we all know, Chael Sonnen is a master uh, promoter. Uh, but this seems genuine if you watch it. This doesn't seem like a put-on. Uh, and so it's like kind of a surprising amount of emotion, I would think, wrapped up in this fight for Chael Sonnen that I think as outsiders people might look at and say, just another Bellator old guy fight. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that that part is genuine for him because I remember when I went to Westland, Oregon to do a story on Chael Sonnen, it was back before the uh, second fight with Anderson Silva, and I'd read his book, and I believe he told that story in his book, and I asked him about that thing, the kind of the deathbed promise to his dad. And at the time, you know, Tito Ortiz was kind of a entering his late UFC, this guy's a joke phase. Uh, and so, and he kind of like laughed off that part saying like, basically, I promised my dad I would be UFC champion. And I told him I was going to beat Tito Ortiz. Ha ha ha. Imagine that. Like that, that, a situation where in order to be a champion, you'd have to beat Tito Ortiz. Wasn't that a long time ago? Um, but, you know, now here he is in this situation where he actually is fighting Tito Ortiz under very different circumstances. Uh, you know, I think that it's difficult sometimes with Chael Sonnen to separate the persona that he has created for himself, which he obviously knows what he's doing there, right? Like, he knows that this is a, a crafted fiction in a lot of ways, but it's not entirely a crafted fiction. Like, it's kind of based on his real personality, I think, and it's a different thing. Like, it's a weird thing to do when, you know, if you're a pro wrestler, you do this and everybody understands what the deal is. We know you're playing a role. If you're an actual person walking around with your real name and playing this character, it can probably get a little trickier for you at times. I think, yeah, very tricky, I think. Uh, and a skill that not everyone has, again. And, and the Chael has been so good at it throughout his late career run in the UFC and now in Bellator that I think we forget how difficult it is to go out there and promote these fights. And I think that this this fight is kind of a prime example of that. Uh, Chael has taken kind of a strange approach to this fight. Like, not, maybe not strange, but, but not necessarily what I expected. He's kind of downplayed any kind of rivalry between him and Tito Ortiz. Uh, he says he likes Tito Ortiz as, as a human, uh, but just has to go out there and fight him in, in Bellator. And Tito Ortiz, on the other hand, seems to only have one gear. Full juice box. When it comes, yes. Full juice full box. Full juice mode. box. When he, when it comes to promoting this stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw the MMA hour today, Chael's appearance on there with, with Ariel Helwani. No, I have a job. I don't, I can't they, do They kind of had a little chuckle about the job Tito has done selling this fight. Uh, and Chael basically said, God love him. You know, he gets out there and does what he can. Uh, but he's, you know, had some blunders. He's just kind of limited in that regard. I wonder if it's frustrating for Chael Sonnen to be as good a, at the like interview selling the fight portion of this to be juxtaposed with Tito Ortiz, who's just going to literally say he will elbow you until you shit your pants. <laughs> also, not only will he say that, he will say that he hopes you're in shape because he is going to elbow you until you shit your pants, which that's where you start to wonder, like, wait a minute, why? It's, no, that's why do I have the, to be in shape for that? That's one of the benchmarks of uh, the male fitness. Like, can you run on a, a sub six minute mile? Okay. Like, what's your two twenty five bench rep? All right. Right. Do some lunges and then uh, shit your pants because someone elbows <laughs> you in the face. That's. I believe right. Jack Lalane came up with yeah, that. Yeah. No, I must have missed forties. Must have missed that part of the fold out poster in men's fitness. Uh, but I'll I'll be sure to check that out. But yeah. No, when you saw him like like doing that conference call kind of thing where Tito Ortiz unrolled all his you know I'm gonna make you shit your pants and I hope you're in shape thing. Uh, and Chael Sonnen seemed like he was trying to do the thing that he does on occasion with opponents where, hey, like, I respect this guy. I'm going to be kind of fall humble about it. But then when Tito would throw out some of these remarks, he could not help himself but to be like, well, there's I guess this is Tito Ortiz's best material. I guess we just heard it. Yeah. There, there, There's everything he's got to give us. Uh, I don't know. I mean, does a part of you wonder if maybe Chael Sonnen realizes like, hey, I'm in the old guy division. I'm fighting Tito Ortiz. I don't need to I don't need to pretend that this is something that it's not. I don't need to go like I'm fighting Anderson Silva and I gotta make fun of the entire nation of Brazil. 
Yeah, no, I think he absolutely knows that. I think he's self-conscious enough and self-aware to know that. I think it comes through in the job that he's done selling this fight a little bit. Uh, just like another anecdote from the MMA hour, basically Ariel asked him like uh, a question about selling the fight and Chael Sonnen was kind of like, well, this one's live and free only on Spike TV. I don't really have anything to sell you even if I wanted to. Like, you know, the rating means something to me uh, in in you know at arm's length and i want you to watch as like service to my own ego but really like i'm i have a different job now i'm not out here selling pay-per-views so it's like but you look at tito and he's doing exactly like he's just on autopilot doing exactly what he would do if he were selling the pay-per-view well yeah i don't know that tito ortiz is an example for best practices of any goddamn thing in the world (laughs) uh but i like as i said when they booked this i think we talked about this when this news broke uh, maybe back in September or October, uh, if this is going to be Bellator shtick going out here and promoting the senior circuit, Tito Ortiz against Chael Sonnen is kind of the kind of fight I can get behind if that's what you're doing. Because neither guy seems like he's at death's door. Yeah, nobody's going to get hurt, probably. They're they're, they're both, uh, you know, there's a nostalgia factor with both guys. They they both pioneer uh, qualify as pioneers, even though Chael didn't show up in the UFC until 2007 or something like that. Uh, but like, I, I have some attachment to both these guys, considering their long careers. Uh, there, I know the kind of style of fight they're going to have. It doesn't feel like anyone will be in danger, and yet they're the sort of athletes and personalities that, when running unopposed without a UFC event this Saturday, yeah, goddamn right. I'll I'll will watch Tito Ortiz and Chael Sonnen. And you forgot another aspect of it. Nobody's asking you to pay for it. No, absolutely. Just like Chael just said. Live and free and only on Spike TV. And interesting that you said running unopposed, much like when Chael Sonnen, uh, as we were talking about this weekend, one of my favorite UFC press conference moments of all time was when before the uh, Chael Sonnen's first fight was an- with Anderson Silva, and he's doing his usual thing in the press conference, and then he mentioned his like getting 92% of the vote or whatever it was uh, in his primary election, and then there was a pause, and Ariel Helwani asked... That was, that was the one where you ran on a post, correct? And then I followed another pause where Chael Sonnen leaned into the microphone and said, correct. <laughs> uh, not that we want to do fight picks on this show, but I feel like when I think about this fight, it's a fight T- Chael Sonnen should win. Yep. Except that it's at light heavyweight, and I wonder if that will play factor in this at all. That nope. he, he will be smaller than Tito Ortiz. No. You don't think so? No. You think this is a cakewalk for the bad guy? I don't know if it's a cakewalk, but... Uh... I do not see – I mean, I feel like we're probably going to a decision here. Almost certainly, I would think. <laughs> I feel like probably the latter half of the fight is not going to be super high-paced, uh, but I feel like Chael Sonnen should win this. Take the over, I guess is what we're saying. All right, you want to do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this sure. week? Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Je- did you hear what Joe Lozon had to say? After his decision win over Marshall Hell? Of course I did. This, first, let me just read the quote here. I thought it sucked before when I thought I won a fight and I lost. This is worse. This sucks. Wow, really? This is worse? It's great that I got the win money, but I 100% thought he won the fight. Honestly, I feel guilty. I'm just saying, I don't don't know how many dudes in MMA are capable of that kind of self-awareness and that kind of honesty, especially in the immediate aftermath of a fight. But I guess now that I've seen it, I'm not surprised that Joe Lozon is one of those precious few. Yeah. I'm just saying, how do you not like Joe Lozon after that? Impossible not to like the guy. Also, if you feel that guilty, maybe give him some of your money. I'm going to come out and say it's probably not worse. Right? He says it's worse. Okay. Ben, anybody who's listened to this show even once, anytime during the last couple of years, has probably heard us bemoan the problem of oversaturation in the UFC live schedule. Uh, I have personally always taken more of a kind of a less is more approach to the UFC schedule, and I'm certain that I'm not alone in that. But inherent in that belief, I guess you would say, is that cutting back the number of the UFC's live shows would be a good thing because fewer UFC events should mean better UFC events. Sure, that's all the math works. But so far, I'm just saying, 
That's not happening in 2017. Obviously, we've got a lot of big draws missing from the UFC roster right now, like we talked about earlier, uh, and we expect the situation to improve. But right now, we're staring down the barrel of the first quarter of the new year where there are nine UFC events booked between now and mid-April. And let me just lay out a few of the main events that are coming your way. Okay. January 28th, a main event on the Fox Network, so ostensibly one of the higher-profile events coming down the pipe, uh, Valentina Shevchenko versus Juliana Pena. Oh, yeah, I got, I got tingles. Then you got February 4th on Fox Sports 1. That main event, as we talked about early, earlier, is Dennis Bermudez versus Chan Sung Jung. Okay. Then you got February 11th, obviously, is UFC 208, where the main event is Holly Holm versus Jermaine Durandamy. The Iron Lady. I guess I'm just saying maybe main event status is the new light heavyweight championship. Everybody gets one. <laughs> you get a main event, and you get a main event, and you get a main event. I'm just saying. Let's see if you're still talking that shit when Yair Rodriguez versus Duho Choi main events one from the Mohegan Sun or some shit. Well, no, that'll probably be pretty cool. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at this uh Fight night or Bellator event, I'm sorry, between uh, Chael Sonnen and uh, uh, Tito Ortiz. And then I guess we'll probably look ahead to this Fox show, huh? Valentina Shevchenko versus Juliana Pena. I guess we An will. An important women's bantamweight contender fight. Sure. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, when Chael Sonnen is looking over there at Tito Ortiz holding up a juice box... Yeah. Do you think that there is some part of Shell Sonnen, the, the born promoter, that has to appreciate what he's doing there? I would really, really, unironically like to know what Shell was when he saw Tito Ortiz squash that juice. What was going through Shell Sonnen? I mean, I imagine it's 50%.